How's it going, Salt City? My name is Jordan. If I haven't had a chance to meet you yet, uh, feel free to come say hi afterwards. I'd love to meet you. Thanks for being here. Um, before we get going, we're, we're in the book of James, and we've got uh, like a study that we're working through as a church. Uh, and if you haven't done that, I want to invite you in on that, whether you got a physical copy when we started needing to jump back in, or uh, you can also find it on our website. But uh, yeah, confession time, I just wasn't doing it. Uh, and which is kind of a bad look uh, if as a pastor you're not doing the thing your church is doing. So I started doing that this week, and it turns out that when you read the Bible to prepare your heart for uh, being with Jesus, it helps. And so I want you guys to jump in on that with me. Uh, it's been really helpful. So uh, we are in James, so if you've got a Bible or an app on your phone, go ahead and flip there. We'll be in James chapter 2. Um, yeah, I w when I was thinking about this, I, I was reminded of when I was learning about who God is. And the, the way I learned theology in college and in seminary was primarily through arguing with my roommates, okay? Because what other way is there? That's the best way to do it. And so I'd come home at night, and I'd look at my roommate, Brian, and I'd be like, all right, Brian, here's our topic for the night. You pick a side. I'll go for the other one. Let's argue it out. And that's how I learned theology. And we uh, would do, we would throw out these like hypothetical questions that were sort of thought experiments to try to figure out like what's at the heart of Christianity. So we, we'd throw stuff out like, okay, say that um, a person hears that there's a God out there who loves them and they want to know that God and they know they've got to turn from their sins and, and come to know him, but they, they don't know like specifically about Jesus. Can that person be a Christian? And we'd like debate that and talk through that. We pick a side, whatever. Or uh, say that somebody like knows about Jesus and somebody says, hey, Jesus loves you. And they're like, yes, I'm in. Uh, but they don't know anything about the rest of the Bible or the moral teachings of Christianity. Or whatever. Can that person be a Christian? And, and here's what we were after with these questions. As we were trying to figure out what the essential nature of Christianity is. Like, like let's get rid of sort of the side stuff and let's just focus on what's, what's the bare minimum that it takes to be an authentic Christian, which I, I think is fine. But as I've been studying the book of James, I think I've learned that I really misunderstood James. I didn't understand what this was teaching because if I did, I would have asked different questions. Because the essential nature of Christianity is not what you theoretically believe, it's how you live. Because what you believe is not what you say you believe or even what you think you believe. What you believe is how you live. So I should have been asking something like this. Say someone believes that Jesus died on the cross for their sins and that, that he offers them grace, which is true, believes all of these sort of orthodox things about Christianity but they're not engaged in influencing other people for Jesus or practically loving other people in their life or caring for the poor in our city. Can that person be a Christian? Or say someone believes that Jesus rose from the dead. He was who he said he was. They, they, they tear up in worship because they, they, they see how he's impacted the world and how he's impacted their life, but they're not giving any of their money to people who need it or to the church. Can that person be a Christian? Or say there's a seminary student training to be a, pa a pastor who consistently talks bad about people behind their back. Can that person be a Christian? So I think what we intuitively think on, on those things is, well, of course, 
Because they said that they believe in Jesus, and that's what it's all about, right? But I don't know if those examples, if those people would pass the test of true religion that James is laying out for us. And so I'm not actually going to answer those questions. I want us to sit in the tension of that because I think that's what James is drawing us into. And I want us to process what James would have to say about those questions, not only about what we in theory believe, but in practicality how we live. And so James has been talking about what true religion is. And he's given us examples of what true religion is, and, and specifically that true religion does, it, that, it, that it loves, it's external, it's towards other people. And he's, he's going to change the wording in, in our text today, but he's talking about a similar idea about what is genuine faith? What is the real thing? And there's two main theological points that he's making that I think these, this text revolves around, all right? So I'm going to kind of show you my work, all right? Because James, uh, it, it gets a little rowdy, guys. He says some pretty intense stuff, and I just want you to know it's James saying it, not me, okay? So I'm, I'm kind of showing you my work here. Uh, so the first main theological point is in verse 10, where he says, you must keep the entire law. And then the second main theological point is that your faith must work. That's in verse 24. And then surrounding those ideas are these examples or these illustrations. So he talks about the faith of Abraham and Rahab and how it was a working faith. He gives this example of a rich person and a poor person and the sin of favoritism or partiality and how that relates to that first theological point. So in other words, it's those two big ideas surrounded by examples. And then those two ideas, I think, connect in verse 12, where it talks about the law of liberty. So that's where we're going today. We're going to talk about those two big theological ideas, look at the examples James gives, and then talk about how those two ideas connect with the law of liberty in verse 12. So let's start with that first point, that we must keep the entire law. Verse 8, if you really fulfill the royal law according to scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. Okay, I want to stop for just a second. Notice what he said the law is. Sometimes when we think about law, we think about kind of arbitrary rules that we don't like, but maybe we should do. But he just said that the law is summarized in that you should love your neighbor. So when you hear the word law, think external love. Something that you're doing to benefit and serve another person in your life, regardless of your relationship to them. Verse 9, but if you show partiality, you are committing sin. That word partiality is, is think favoritism. You're committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. I want to read verse 10 again. For whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become guilty of all of it. That is a very weighty thing that he just said, and it's a little bit confusing for us. He said, if you break even one of the commandments of God, it's like you've broken the whole thing. Okay, so some morality, we kind of intuitively know this, some morality is uh, partial. So, so what I mean is, if, if when you were a kid, if you're told by your parents, hey, I want you to clean up your room and then take out the trash. Let's say you clean up your room, but don't take out the trash. You did part of it. That was a partial obedience. 
right? So it's not everything that you were supposed to do, but at least you did something which is better than nothing. So we kind of understand that, partial obedience. But there's a second category of all or nothing obedience. And he actually gives us two examples in this text, the examples of murder and adultery. You can't kind of murder someone. You just either murder or you didn't. Adultery. If you committed adultery, it's not helpful to say, well, I just committed a little bit of adultery. It's like that, that doesn't matter. You committed adultery. It's an all or nothing category. This is what James is saying is the law of God. In other words, the, the summary of all the things that God has asked us to do as an expression of his character in love towards other people, that law is an all or nothing category. But that's really difficult for us because we tend to think of it as a partial category. We think, okay, I, I, I'm a sinner, and so I, I follow God sometimes, but other times I don't. But following him sometimes is better than nothing. So if I've got a stack of my bad behavior here and my good behavior here, as it, you know, every once in a while I'll kind of lose one from this stack, but as long as this stack doesn't get bigger than this one, then I'm okay. It, it, and James is saying you can't do that. It's all or nothing. The law of God is like a window. It's a single plane of glass where it's all in, interconnected, and sin is a brick that you throw through that window. You had a whole window, and now you have a broken window. That's what sin is. You break one of it, you break all of it. Now, he's going to explain that through an illustration or a, a hypothetical example in verse 2. He's going to tell this story about imagine a, a rich person and a poor person walk into church together and are treated differently because of how they look. Verse 2. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothes comes into your assembly, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in, and if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you stand over there, or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith? and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him. So we'll circle back to how that relates to that idea of breaking the whole law. We're going to get to that. But I want to I pull over for a second so that we're not tempted to sort of let this just brush past us. Do you show favoritism to people? The, the, the word here, favoritism, is, is something like looking at face. The, 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 the idea that it's communicating is you look at a person and based off of their appearance, you treat them differently or you respect them or don't respect them based on how they look. Are you engaged in that? The specific example here, even though it applies to a lot of other examples, the specific example is with money. Do you have a place in where you work? or potentially own a business? And do you use that, that position economically to serve and love the people that you work with or maybe that work for you? Or do you use that position to try to get everything out of them that you can without compensating them fairly? Or 
do you tend to think that your wealth is a result of your morality and your work ethic? And that a poor person, their lack of wealth, it's a result of their lack of morality or their lack of work ethic. Is that how you think, even though James says in verse 5 that the poor person is chosen by God and a member of the riches of his kingdom? And that over and over again in Scripture, Jesus has talked about how it's difficult for a rich person to inherit the kingdom of God. Or let's move on to a different example. Let's talk masks. Okay? Depending on your uh, viewpoint, do you look at someone who's not wearing a mask and immediately assume all these things about them? That they don't care about human life or, or whatever, whatever those assumptions are, or assume their political persuasion, and you start thinking poorly of them. Or, if you're from a different perspective, do you see someone wearing a mask in a context that you think it's unnecessary, and do you immediately judge them and think they're ridiculous? And do you talk about them behind their back? Or bumper stickers, okay? You're driving down the road, you see a bumper sticker for some uh, political person that you disagree with, and all of a sudden you're strangely more critical of that person's driving. <laughs> uh, or just in general, the politics thing, right? Like you know where somebody stands at work or at school or whatever, and they're coming down the hallway and you're going the other way. Or you tend to treat that person differently or think of them as less intelligent because they don't agree with your philosophy. What about social cues? Awkward people. Do you pursue relationship with people that are hard to be in relationship with, or do you walk the other way, not treating them with dignity and respect? Again, this is, this is about favoritism towards appearance, race. Do you see someone, maybe if, if you are white, do you see a minority and assume something about who they are, about what they believe, or about maybe antagonism towards you? Or do you see a white person and assume antagonism towards you? Assume ignorance on their end because of the color of their skin? Are you judging and treating people differently because of their background? See, here, here's what's happening in this example is people from vastly different backgrounds are coming together in the church because that's what the kingdom of God does. Here's what's true about Jesus Christ, is he is so compelling, he is so beautiful, he is so amazing, that people from all sorts of different social perspectives come together in him and they want a part of him. And the differences that are typically there between people don't matter as much when they realize the significance of Jesus Christ and the beauty of him. And so by the grace of God, that's what will happen in this church is people from all kinds of different backgrounds, all kinds of different socioeconomic status, all kinds of different political viewpoints are going to come together here because Jesus is compelling and he's amazing. And so we will come together in this same room. And the question is, is will you gravitate towards people that are just like you or will you seek to understand someone who's different than you because they are in Christ and so are you so you have more commonality in him than you have differences between you? This will not be a place of favoritism. This will not be a place of disrespect. By the grace of God, we will treat people with dignity and respect regardless because of Jesus Christ and who he is. And this is why it's such a big deal in the book of James. 
is because he's arguing that in breaking that one, in, in committing that one sin of favoritism, you're actually breaking the entire heart of God and you're, you're lacking his character. Look at this in verse five. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Do you see what he's doing there? He's saying God chose someone for his kingdom. And then you decided to reject that person or to disrespect that person. Therefore, you have contradicted the heart of God. See, here's why the the law is so significant. Because it's not just an arbitrary set of rules, but it's a reflection of the character and goodness of God. It's a description of what God is like and therefore what we should be like in his image, in particular as Christians. And so when we break or when we break part of the law or we don't like part of the law or choose to work our way around part of the law, we're breaking the heart of God and we're choosing to work our way around God's lordship in our life. And if you pick and choose what you believe or what you listen to in what God says, you're no longer saying that he's Lord, but you're elevating yourself above him and you're choosing the things that you like, but neglecting the things that you don't like and therefore trying to take his place. You're rejecting him. Now, on a setback, the argument could be made here. Hey, isn't Christianity all about forgiveness? Like this is a little heavy-handed Isn't the whole point of Christianity that we can't keep the law and therefore need to receive forgiveness and grace from Jesus? And so it's not about our works. It's about that faith that we put in him so that we can receive his grace. Well, James actually specifically brings up that argument when he's he's in the middle of his logic flow describing the relationship between faith and works. He brings up that specific objection. Let me read it to you, verse 18. But someone will say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith apart from your works, and I will show you my faith by my works. So so in other words, he's saying somebody is trying to separate faith and works by saying, hey, James, you might have uh, works along with your faith. You might be good at serving the poor and blessing people who are different than you. That's your gift, but my gift is sort of theological. It's abstract. It's it's, It's more faith driven. But James says, no, you can't show faith like that. I'll show you my faith by my works. Verse 19, you believe that God is one, you do well. Even the demons believe and shudder. Feel that. Here's another illustration from James about his point. The demons have better theology than you do. They have better theology than I do. I'm convinced of that. They've been here throughout all of eternity, and so they've actually seen the unfolding plan of God. They were there when Jesus died and when he rose again from the dead. And so they would be able to articulate in an incredibly clear way what the message of Christianity is in a way far better than any of us in this room could. And they hate God. You can have great theology and be able to communicate the message of Christianity and still hate God and choose not to live for him or with him. And so here's what that means, is that you 
can be able to articulate the truth about Christianity, that Jesus died on the cross and rose again from the dead for your sins. You could look back at a conversion experience and say, that's when I became a Christian. You could list out for me all the ways that you're living the, the, the Christian life, that you're coming to church, that you're going to connection group, all the things that you're doing. You could be doing all of that, and you could still hate God. And that would be evidence not in what you say, but in how you live or in the lack of love coming from your life. Because your actions are not an exception. When you, when, you, when you sin, when you do something wrong, your actions are not an exception to what you believe. They're evidence of what you believe. And if that feels kind of weighty and intense, James gets to this point, and then he just doubles down. Okay, verse 17. So also faith by itself, if it does not have works, is dead. Verse 24. You see that a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. So I want to take that, that second one. That's what our second point is based off of, that genuine faith works. And I want to unpack that. You see a person is justified by works and not by faith alone. Now, evangelical Christians, we tend to get really nervous when you put faith and works too close together. Because we have pushed back on this idea that works have anything to do with salvation. And we can tend to look at maybe other denominations or other belief systems and say that the idea that, that works have part of your salvation um, is, is just not true, right? That, that you being baptized or um, you going to church or you going to confession, that the idea that that would be a part of what it means for you to be a Christian is a little bit ridiculous. And, and to be honest, that, that actually is true. That, the, that is ridiculous. The, the primary um, analogy in Scripture of salvation is you go from being dead to being alive. Spiritually dead to spiritual life. The idea that getting some water on you or telling someone about a sin could save you is ridiculous. That is not the teaching of Christianity. But you know what's equally ridiculous? Reducing Christianity down to a series of mental and theological hoops that you can jump through even though your life indicates that you clearly don't love God and calling that Christianity. That is equally as bad. To claim Christ when you're clearly dead. This is well illustrated by the great Michael Scott from The Office. So there's this scene where Michael is having money problems. I'm not necessarily recommending the whole show or whatever, but just like this would be, this would be worth like YouTubing. There's a scene where Michael is having money problems, and some of you already know where I'm going with this. He's having money problems, and his buddy Creed tells him, hey, the way you get out of your money problems is that you declare bankruptcy, and it's going to solve all your problems, Michael. You just got to declare bankruptcy. So Michael walks out into the office, kind of takes his stance and says, I declare bankruptcy. And then he goes into his office and he starts cutting up his credit cards. And then Oscar walks in and he says, hey, Michael, I, I just want you to know that just saying the word bankruptcy doesn't mean anything, doesn't, doesn't help you. Michael says, I didn't say it, I declared it. And Oscar's like, yes, still, it doesn't, doesn't actually do anything. This is what I'm saying. 
you declaring yourself a Christian, it doesn't actually do anything. You, you having a conversion experience that you had at some recent point in your life, you, you coming to church and raising your hand and saying, I'm a Christian, it, it, it doesn't do anything. If your life does not evidence the fact that you are in Christ. Transformation is the evidence of genuine conversion. Not you declaring yourself a Christian. And he gives the example of this from Abraham and Rahab. People that were held up as in the Old Testament as people having faith. In verse 21, was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up his son Isaac on the altar? You see that faith was active along with his works and faith was completed by his works. You see what he's saying? He's saying there's an interdependent relationship between faith and works and that works uh, uh, proves faith genuine. It's, it's, it's the activation of faith. Now, is James contradicting the clear teaching of the rest of the Bible? That we are saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. No. Am I suddenly going back on everything that I've ever taught at this church? No. So how do these two ideas come together? Well, I'm going to let Charles Spurgeon answer that question. He's going to answer it a little bit better than I can. It's a long quote, but I think it's worth it. It's been really helpful for me. He gave this analogy talking about this text. A tree has been planted out into the ground. Now the source of life to that tree is at the root. Whether it has apples on it or not, the apples would not give it life, but the whole of the life of the tree will come from its root. But if that tree stands in the orchard and when the springtime comes, there's no bud, and when the summer comes, there's no leafing and no fruit bearing, but the next year and the next, it stands there without bud or blossom or leaf or fruit, you would say it is dead. And you are correct, it is dead. It is not that the leaves could have made it live, but that the absence of the leaves is a proof that it is dead. So too it is with the professor, the person who claims Christianity. If he has life, that life must give fruits. If not fruits, works. If his faith has a root. But if there be no works, then it would be correct to depend upon the inference that he is spiritually dead. Do you see what he's saying? It, it's not that a, a tree that has an apple on it, that that apple makes the tree alive. The, the root system is what makes that tree alive. But if there's a tree that consistently produces no fruit, you would be correct in describing that tree as dead because the lack of that fruit is evidence of its death. He's saying that's the same thing with faith and works within Christianity. But... Here's what can happen as we can hear this, is our inner legalist can like flare up in us. And you can start to say, okay, give me the list. Where's the list of stuff I've got to do to be right with God? I'm going to go do it. Like I'm a, I'm, I'm a succeeder. And so, so I'm going to succeed in this Christianity thing. I'll prove that I have my works. I'm going to add works to my life. Maybe you're running through in your mind the things that you need to do this week in order to be a working, faith-filled Christian. But that's not how this works. Imagine if you had a dead tree and your solution to that dead tree was that you cut an apple out of a piece of paper and taped it onto the tree and said, look, the tree's alive. 
if you are dead spiritually, you trying to produce works is the same thing as you taping a paper apple on a tree. That will not bring you to life. And so this is what I want you to hear. If you, feel, if you can feel convicted by the message of James, if you're questioning, am I really a Christian, or, or has this been kind of fake, or even if you know that you're in, if you know that you're a Christian, but you feel convicted by some of the, the lack of love in your life, you don't go out and try and add works. You run to the source of life. Jesus Christ rose from the dead, and he's rising everyone from death who will trust in him, which means that if you're spiritually dead, run to him, and he will resurrect you into new spiritual life, and he will begin to transform you and conform you into his image, because in him and him alone is life. And so run to the source of life so that you can come alive. That is the application of this message. Repent of your lack of works. Come to Jesus Christ and start living the life that he would have you live. Image him to the world by his power and by his grace. So let's bring this all together. Real faith, genuine faith equals keeping the whole law of liberty. I'm getting that law of liberty from verse 12, and I want to talk about that. Because typically when we think law, we don't think liberty. Typically when we think rules, we don't think freedom. And so how do those things come together? Well, remember what we said, the law points to the character of God. The descriptions in the Bible about how we should live, yes, are indicators of who you should be and are a vision for the type of life that you can live. But even more so than that, they are a vision of the beautiful character of Jesus Christ, of his goodness, of his faith, of his love, of his joy, of his works. Jesus Christ was the most obedient man who's ever lived, and he was also the most free person who's ever lived. That is not an accident. Because following the law of God is the pathway to freedom in him. When you think about the law of God, maybe don't think about it so much as abstract rules that aren't very fun to follow. Think about it more as a natural law, God's description of the way that things are. So if you decide that you're going to be free by deciding to fly, and so you get up on the top of your house and you decide, I'm going to exercise my freedom through flight, hopefully you will have a person in your life that says, hey, uh, that's not going to set you free. That's going to hurt a lot. Why? Because the law of gravity exists. And so when, when the Bible unpacks the law, it is unpacking the character of Christ. It's unpacking the way that things are. And when Jesus is saying, hey, don't try to exercise your freedom outside of me by living the way that you want to live, he's saying, hey, if you live that way, it's going to hurt because that is not the way that things are. I am the way that things are. I'm the center and focal point of the universe. And so if you live in me, you will live the good life. I am the way, the truth, and the life. I am the good life. That's what Jesus is saying. So come live in him. And, and he is the ultimate expression of freedom. He has never done anything in his life that did not produce freedom. And so you better believe that when he speaks these words to us about how we should live, he's speaking them because he wants us not to be enslaved, but to be free. That's who Jesus is. And so we start to understand and start to be motivated to live the way that Jesus wants us to live when we understand the law in a relational context like that. 
That the point is not just to follow some rules and get an obedient life. The point is to get God. And so think, think about it through this lens in the relational context. I, I think this helps make sense of it. If I told you, if, if I didn't know you, I met you for the first time and I told you that I was married, you would believe me. But then as you got to know my life, if you saw that I went home and I lived by myself at night and then I was dating random girls and I was not committed to any one person, what would you conclude? That I'm not married. Because my life outweighs what I say. Okay, this, is, this is what James is saying. If you say, I am a Christian, but you don't go and love God and love people, you are not a Christian. So just own that. Like, if that's true of you, stop calling yourself a Christian and investigate what authentic Christianity would be like. But on the other side of things, imagine if you looked at my life and you saw me at home doing the dishes and you saw me protecting date night and, and, and trying to like help my marriage succeed and this was your, your conclusion. Man, what a legalistic approach to marriage. I can't believe that Jordan is trying to earn Jessamy's love with his good works. No, that's ridiculous. No one thinks about marriage like that. Like, I'm not trying to earn her love with my good works. I'm married. I love her. And so I want to live a life that, that demonstrates that. And, and it's actually to my benefit that I serve and love my wife because it elevates our relationship and I get to experience the benefit of that elevation of that relationship. This is what I'm saying. Is, so marriage is actually one of the pictures that Jesus gives us in the scriptures about what relationship with him is like, which is stunning. Jesus is saying, hey, I'm committing to you for life. I'm never going to leave you or forsake you. I'm always going to be with you, and I want you to make that same commitment to me. And Jesus came, and he performed all the works in order to have relationship with you. He did everything that it took, including giving his own life to prove that he loved you, and he invites you into relationship with him. And so live out the way that he instructs you to live, not because you're trying to earn his love, but because you already have it. And because that is the best life you could possibly live. But I think it's hard for us to get our heads around that because we're not convinced that living for Christ is true freedom. We have some other picture of the good life, some other idea of what freedom is. And so we, we don't actually live that way. I want you to imagine that you believed that money was freedom. I'm not saying that money is freedom, to clarify, but imagine that you believe that money was freedom. You would never ask yourself, what is the minimum amount of money that I can make in order to survive? You would always be asking yourself, how can I max out the amount of money that I can make and it would be worth the sacrifices that I need to make in order to make that happen, right? Why? Because you believe money is freedom. This is what I'm saying, as a Christian, you should never ask the question, what is the minimum amount that I can do in order to be saved? Because Jesus is freedom. So the question is not how much should I do, but what joy is offered to me by following Christ? What's the how do I max out on obedience to Jesus so that I can live the good life? And so this is what I want to both challenge and invite you to this morning, is max out your life in obedience to Jesus so that you can experience the freedom that he offers. And look, that, that takes intentionality, it takes a plan, it takes a lot of time, just like a marriage does, but it's worth it. 
And, and, and we can't unpack how to create that plan here together, but there's lots of ways you can do that in our church. You can join a connection group. You can apply for membership. You can apply for leadership. You can serve with our church. You can take our equipping classes, but you need a plan for how to go out and maximize freedom with Jesus, how to train yourself for godliness so that you can experience his character in your life. And so specifically, can I say for connection groups this week, can we not talk about following Jesus in the theory and the abstract and give kind of the, the hypothetical Christian answers? Can we talk about your real life? Like, w- will you be vulnerable and say, these are the ways that I'm not following Jesus? Will you hold me accountable to following him? And will you guys as a connection group make a plan this week for how to follow Jesus and then actually circle back with each other on how to do it? Connection group leaders, maybe you introduce your connection group to the rule of life tool that we've been using a way to structure your whole life around living in before the face of God and following him. But will you guys as a connection group actually take seriously these steps towards freedom in him because you're convinced that it's the best life you could possibly live? Guys, let's actually follow Jesus because he's good. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you that you worked on our behalf, that you were perfect in all the ways that we're not. And we come to you very imperfect people who have not lived the lives that we should have lived. And we praise you that you are slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. And so we come before you with confidence, Jesus, that that you're not going to hold our sins against us, but also, God, we come before you saying, would you we want to be like you. We want to represent you to the world. We, we believe that you're good, Jesus, and so we want to live like you. And so, God, give us the power by your spirit to, to live lives that, that are like you. Please conform us in your image. Make us like you, Jesus. And I pray um, for freedom from sin in our church, God, that people would turn away from, from addictions, from, from greed, from pride, that they would take practical steps this week to turn away from sin and that you would give them a taste of, of freedom in you. God, empower us to do that by your spirit. Let us be a church that that loves people well and doesn't just live in our own kind of insulated bubble, but that loves people who are different than us. God, give us the grace that we need to experience the life that you you made us to live. God, we want to be like you, Jesus. Please help us by your spirit. We love you. Amen.